This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. Cavalry Audio. Welcome back to another season of The Devil Within. I'm your writer and narrator, Brandon Morgan. I wanted to thank each and every one of you for making season one of The Devil Within a top five new podcast of 2021. And I hope you enjoy season two. Here we go. In season one of The Devil Within, we covered the tragic events that led to the alleged demonic possession of a 14-year-old boy from New Jersey. Several obvious signs were missed by nearly everyone around him, and the end result was a night of unspeakable violence in the form of a grisly murder-suicide, the circumstances of which are debated to this very day. We also touched briefly on a book, a spell book from the mid-1600s called The Lesser Key of Solomon that detailed the names and characteristics of the 72 greatest demons of hell, how to conjure them, and ultimately, how to defeat them. Some of the practices and suggestions in this book would become codified by the Catholic Church soon after in their own book, The Ritual Romanum, and those teachings would stand until 1999, when they were slightly altered by Pope John Paul II. Not condemned, repudiated, or withdrawn, just slightly altered. The Lesser Key of Solomon describes great and terrible rulers of hell, like Asmodai and Paimon, Balberith and Glacia Labulas, demons who command lust and wickedness, mayhem and murder. It seems that Tommy, willingly or otherwise, fell under their influence and was powerless to escape. For season two, we're going to be taking a step back in time to the year Tommy Sullivan was born, 1974. And instead of rural northern New Jersey, we're going to be in rural northern England. While the differences between the two decades, the 70s and 80s, could hardly be more pronounced. The differences between the two communities are strikingly similar. Tight-knit, hardworking, God-fearing, community-based living, where people relied on their neighbors and their church. And the goal was, like the rest of us, to raise their families in peace. However, by 1974, peace was in short supply in the United Kingdom. On the evening of October 5th, 1974, there were two horrifying events that grabbed headlines in the UK. Both events were orchestrated by high-level officials of their respective organizations. Both were denounced for the needless suffering and loss of life. One was a political statement designed to inflict massive damage and send a clear message of defiance and rebellion to emphasize a national struggle a war, really, that had been waged for decades. The other was a smaller, quieter, much more personal struggle that would explode into violence and lead to another massacre of the innocent. Interestingly, one had nothing to do with religion, while the other had everything to do with religion. Which one do you think we're going to be focusing on? 
On the night of October 5th, 1974, two pubs in the town of Guildford, just south of London in the United Kingdom, were bombed by the Irish Republican Army. These pubs were targeted because they were popular with British soldiers who were stationed at a nearby barracks. Five people were killed and 54 were injured in the bombings at pubs in Guildford in October 1974. Then at Woolwich, two people died and 34 were injured. The IRA were blamed at the time. The motive was said to be attacks on pubs where soldiers were drinking. The attacks were attributed to, quote, the Troubles, a violent conflict between the UK and Northern Ireland that spanned 30 years and saw thousands die. Why? Politics, mostly. The so-called separatists in Northern Ireland wanted to end British rule in their country and become part of a unified Ireland, while the Unionists in the UK wanted things to stay how they were, how they had been for decades. Although often mischaracterized as having a major ethnic dimension to the conflict, religion, in fact, had very little to do with it. Now, that's not to say that strong religious prejudices didn't exist on both sides, at all levels, from rank and file all the way up to leadership. But ultimately, the events that led to the Good Friday Agreement in 1998 that effectively ended the hostilities had nothing to do with religion. However, on that same night, hundreds of miles to the north, in the small village of Osset in Yorkshire County, The religious powers that be in that charming little hamlet decided that an otherwise quiet and mild-mannered gentleman in his early 30s had been completely and hopelessly possessed by almost 50 demons from the depths of hell itself. Hopeless, that is, were it not for their expert navigation through the mysterious and complicated rite of exorcism. From Cavalry Audio, this is Season 2 of The Devil Within, The Demons of Yorkshire. Episode 1, A Murder Most Foul. Yorkshire County is the largest in the UK, a massive, sprawling section of northern England that boasts both Roman and Viking heritage, Norman castles, and medieval walls. Small hamlets and villages are scattered throughout the green, rolling hills, and to the east, the 60-plus miles of coastline that meet the North Sea offer Jurassic and Cretaceous geology that is among the best in the world, so much so that it is often described as the Dinosaur Coast. Yorkshire, England's largest county, a land of broad acres and distinctive character. The county is divided into three ridings, a word derived from the Norse ridding, meaning a third part. There is a north, east and west riding, but no south riding. Curiously, the county town York, which was founded 2,000 years ago, is in none of the three, but constitutes a separate miniature county on its own. October 6th, 1974. The morning after the Guildford bombings began as a quiet Sunday at the Wakefield Police Station in West Yorkshire. Quiet, but far edgier than usual. The skeleton crew in the small village 
were all focused on the newspaper and radio reports coming out of Guilford. The attacks, while not entirely unique, were considered rare, especially that deep into Great Britain. The military was targeted, and maybe police would be next. For Officer Ian Walker, it was something he'd rather not think about. He had a young wife and new baby at home and hoped to grow his family in the years ahead. When a call came in about a streaker in the streets of the nearby village of Osset, Officer Walker gladly volunteered to look into it, happy for the distraction. He tapped another officer from the station, his friend John, and the two of them set out for the quick five-mile drive to downtown Osset. Streaking is defined as the act of running naked through a public space, purportedly an American invention that was the product of the great minds at Florida State University in the spring of 1974. We're going going streaking through the quad and into the gymnasium. Come on, everybody! A crude and dubious provenance, but ultimately believable. As tends to happen, the phenomenon took hold and quickly went global. Easily the most famous or infamous streaking incident in those early years took place in Great Britain. It was during a rugby match between England and France at Twickenham Stadium that 25-year-old Australian Michael O'Brien was offered a challenge from his friend that he couldn't run across the field and touch the opposing fence, completely naked. Assisted by several beers in his decision-making, O'Brien accepted. He stripped down, jumped the fence, and ran onto the field. He was tackled by police and... When asked to explain his actions, he informed them that it was a bet and that he could win 10 pounds if they would just let him touch the fence on the other side of the field. And they did. Then they fined him 10 pounds for trespassing. There were several other high-profile streaking events in the months that followed, and the Twickenham affair, complete with a prize-winning photograph, stayed in the news for months. Officer Ian Walker unsure of what he'd find, and interested as to why the report included that the streaker was covered in red paint, felt no cause for alarm as he pulled into the Osset Town Square and the two officers began their search. At roughly the same time, unbeknownst to the officers at Wakefield, the sergeant from the local police station was responding to a report of possible domestic violence also in Osset. The sergeant arrived at a small, tidy house, took a quick look through one of the windows, and knew immediately that he needed help. Lots of help. By the time the two Wakefield officers arrived in Osset to look for this streaker, reinforcements were arriving, including the detective inspector, to investigate at the scene of the domestic disturbance just a few hundred yards from where Walker parked his police car. However, Officer Walker knew nothing of this other service call. His only thought was, where was this streaker? Walker was confident they would soon come across a drunken college student from the nearby Leeds campus, sleeping off the previous night's debauchery, perfectly willing to accept his misdemeanor infraction in exchange for temporary hero status among his friends and classmates. Then Walker's partner, John, saw movement on the sidewalk in front of a pub 
less than a block away. Walker saw it too, and immediately was overcome with a desperate sense of foreboding. The red paint from the initial report was no longer red. The substance covering this man's body was now dried and brown. And he was indeed covered, from his clumpy, matted hair right down to his feet, still in socks. Pathetically, the only part of his body still clothed. John caught his breath and looked at his partner. Oh, Christ, Ian, that's not fucking paint. He's covered in blood. I know, came the reply from Ian. Call it in and get an ambulance here right away. Officer Walker slowly approached the naked man laid out on the sidewalk. Was he alive? Was he wounded? Walker could tell the man was in his late 20s or early 30s and doubted he was injured as there was no blood pooling around him, which begged the question, whose blood was this guy covered in? Find out after the break. The ambulance was quick to arrive, and as Officer Walker's colleague assisted with the paramedics, Walker himself got onto the ground to get face-to-face with this sad, desperate man. At first, the man wouldn't speak. He just exhaled in raspy, muddled breaths. But then, to his surprise, Walker heard the man utter two words. Last night. Walker, not expecting to hear a word from this man, let him know that he was listening. Yes, he said. What about last night? And then the man on the street began what seemed like an explanation, or maybe an excuse. Because he said, I was primed for it. They primed me for it. Walker was completely lost, and he needed to know more. So he asked, who? Who primed you for it? And what is it that you've done, sir? The man on the street just kept talking as if Walker weren't there. They tried to bring me peace of mind, he said, but instead they filled me with the devil. Now the fear of something truly terrible was growing within Officer Walker. And considering that the man was covered in blood and was apparently uninjured, Plus, he seemed to be incredibly distraught and experiencing some type of mental break. Walker needed to get answers, and fast. Who are you talking about, he asked. What did they do? This is when the naked man began a slow spiral into madness. He started raising his voice to the point where he was yelling, I loved that woman, but it was within her, he said. I destroyed the evil that was within her, he said. It had to be done. Then he began to implore a God that he hoped was listening and that it was all a dream. No, he said, please, God, no, please. Walker's worst fears were being realized. Did you hurt someone, he asked. Tell me what happened. Whose blood is this? That's when the man was seemingly struck by a moment of lucidity and self-awareness. 
he took a second to look at himself. At his own body, nude and smeared with gore, sprawled out on a public sidewalk. After careful consideration, he looked back at Officer Walker and then stated what was obvious, at least to him. It is the blood of Satan. Officer Walker reeled back from the naked man, sure of one thing. The man had committed a horrible crime. Not a particularly religious person or a superstitious one, Officer Walker was less concerned about the claims of the devil's involvement and laser-focused on figuring out who this man was and where the crime scene might be. It only took a few moments before he had the answer to both of those questions. A patron from a local shop identified the man as Michael Taylor, 31 years old, married, and father to five children. Officer Walker wouldn't allow himself to consider the worst-case scenario. He could find out for himself soon enough. The Taylors lived only a few hundred yards from where he now stood. Walker and his partner drove the short distance to the Taylor home, and moments later were met with a confusing and utterly disturbing sight. An established crime scene. All Walker could think about was the description he was given about the naked man. Michael Taylor... 31 years old, married, father of five, an insane man covered in blood, and now a crime scene at his residence. Officer Walker steeled himself as he got out of his car and prepared for the worst. He recognized the sergeant from the local police department. They each wanted to know what the other was doing there. Being outranked, Officer Walker went first. He explained to the sergeant that he had been on a call to investigate a possible streaker in Osset when they came upon a man covered in blood, in obvious mental distress, and making strange claims about his wife and the devil. He was identified as Michael Taylor, the resident of the house they were currently standing in front of. The sergeant seemed incredibly interested in the current whereabouts of Michael Taylor, and when Walker assured him that Taylor was secured and being transported under guard to a medical facility, he began to explain to Walker the situation. Reports of a domestic disturbance in the early morning hours, screaming, a dog barking, an enraged man, and then what sounded like sounds of violence, followed by breaking glass, a door slamming, and then silence. Before Walker could ask any questions, the front door of the Taylor home opened, and, incredibly, the detective inspector walked out on shaky legs. The position of detective inspector is a high-ranking, elite position at the county level, and Walker had never been involved in a case that called for such oversight. The inspector, as soon as he was clear of the walkway and safely in the grass of the front yard, bent over and vomited. Walker was stunned into silence, as was the sergeant. The inspector looked up, first at the sergeant, and then to the new, unfamiliar face of Officer Walker. Who's this? he asked. The sergeant explained that Officer Walker had located Michael Taylor, and that he was found naked and covered in blood, but otherwise uninjured. The inspector nodded, deep in thought. 
Officer Walker took a few steps towards the door while asking if he should go in to help. But he was immediately stopped by the inspector with a firm hand to Walker's chest. The inspector had a few questions for the young officer. Was he married? Yes. Children? Yes. Then he would simply not be permitted to enter the house. The inspector assured Walker that he didn't want to see what had happened in there. In all his years in law enforcement, the inspector had seen more than his share of evil, violent acts. But nothing like this. Though somewhat insulted, both as a man and as a cop, Walker asked the only question whose answer would inform his ultimate decision as to whether or not he'd enter the house. The children. Are the children okay? Because for as tough as Walker believed himself to be, he wasn't sure he could walk into the aftermath of a massacre of children and carry on with his normal life. The children, mercifully, had spent the previous evening with their grandparents. Apparently, Michael and his wife had some big plans that, one would assume, didn't include murder. Regardless, when Officer Walker learned that the children were not victims, he decided to go in. The inspector made one last attempt to dissuade him. He grabbed him by the arm and told him, It's the wife. Do you understand? It's the wife. She's got no... The word the inspector couldn't force himself to say was face. As in, she's got no face. The inspector was trying to warn Walker that Michael Taylor had ripped his wife's face completely off. However, Walker, determined, made his way into the house. In his later years, he would openly admit that it was a terrible mistake. That he wished he had never seen what had occurred within the walls of the modest two-story home in Osset. More of The Devil Within, after the break. Upon entering the house, Officer Walker was confused. Could this much blood really come from one person? He was certain he had heard correctly, that the Taylor children weren't home at the time of the violence. So all the carnage had been from Mrs. Taylor and only Mrs. Taylor? It seemed as though every conceivable surface had been assaulted with blood and gore. The house ransacked and destroyed, furniture in splinters. And then, of course, the body of Mrs. Taylor. We'll get to that in a minute. Walker also noticed a single broken window that led to the garden behind the house. The remains of the shattered pane were smeared with blood, and taking a look out the window, there was additional police tape cordoning off another area of interest to the investigators. This is where Officer Walker would learn that his earlier assumption that Mrs. Taylor was the only victim wasn't entirely accurate. Christine Taylor had a dog, a beloved poodle that she coveted and pampered. The dog now lay scattered about the garden, 
torn to pieces by a madman. Legs ripped from the sockets, eyes, teeth, and fur violently wrenched from the skull, then discarded like trash out the back window. If nothing else, the killer's treatment of the dog should have prepared Officer Walker for what he was about to see in the mutilated remains of Christine Taylor. The inspector had been correct, Michael discovered to his own horror. The victim's face had been torn off. Her tongue had been ripped from her mouth, and the rest of her body showed signs of violent trauma. There were strips of flesh scattered about the floor and walls. Her eyes were gouged out. The blood that covered Michael Taylor as he lay in the streets of Osset had only recently been pumping through the beating heart of the woman he loved, the woman who bore him five sons, his partner in their life journey, who had been, by all accounts, a faithful and loving wife. Officer Walker's first job, as ordered by the detective inspector, was to search the house and surrounding area for a murder weapon. Given the severity of the wounds, there had to be an edged instrument covered in blood somewhere in the immediate area. He was instructed to, if necessary, walk the distance from the house to the sidewalk where Michael Taylor was discovered in an effort to locate whatever weapon Taylor used to murder his wife and her dog. Bushes, gutters, sewers, anywhere a deranged, murderous lunatic would toss a bloody knife as he made his getaway from the crime scene. But Officer Walker's efforts were in vain. Despite searching far and wide for Michael Taylor's instrument of death, he found none. For there was none. The medical examiner would later conclude that all the horrific damage to Christine Taylor had been done with her husband's bare hands. Set aside for the moment, what could possibly compel a human being to do that to another human being? And consider how a human being could do that to another human being. Not morally, but physically. Is it even possible? Does someone have the strength to do what Michael Taylor was accused of doing? It's a question that would hang heavy over the entirety of the investigation. How had it come to this? How could a man described as mild-mannered by all who knew him only months before turn into a violent murderer who, only hours after the murder, admitted to his uncontrollable desire to kill every living thing in that house? It was time to start the grueling process of piecing together what had happened. What had corrupted this man so completely? Who was involved? Was there anyone else to bear any of the responsibility? When a delirious and naked Michael Taylor confided to Officer Walker that they had primed him for it and filled him with the devil, who was he talking about? The investigation would answer all these questions and more, and would ultimately lead to a shocking trial that would have the UK and the world transfixed. Why? 
Because just like in the Tommy Sullivan case, friends and relatives of Michael Taylor were shocked at the rapid transformation from, again, mild-mannered family man to crazed killer. And also similar to the Sullivan case, there were whispers of demonic possession that turned into screams of foul play on the part of the church. But, unlike the unfortunate end of young Tommy Sullivan, Michael Taylor somehow found his way into the embrace of religious leaders who claimed to possess a sacred knowledge that could cure Michael of his ills and restore him to a respected member of society, whether he agreed to it or not. Tommy Sullivan allegedly took his own life before he could avail himself of any, quote, cures that the church had to offer. He must have known that exorcism was and remains a Catholic rite. We can assume his young, broken mind was too far gone to entertain such things. But not Michael Taylor. In this season of The Devil Within, we'll investigate the circumstances under which Mr. Taylor found himself at the mercy of trusted religious figures and the terrible aftermath that he and his family endured. We'll also come to understand how and why the Taylors sought out religious fellowship during difficult times and fell victim to what many believed to be a cult, the central figure of which was a charismatic preacher who claimed to be guided by the Holy Spirit and would testify to the extraordinary series of events that led to the murder of Christine Taylor and paved the way, just 10 years later, to what came to be known as the Satanic Panic. On the next episode of The Devil Within, we'll get an idea of what was going on in the UK in 1974 and how economic conditions, political and social unrest, and a hit movie helped create an environment ripe for murder. The movie, by the way, is one you may have heard of. The Exorcist. That's next time on The Devil Within. The Devil Within Season 2, The Demons of Yorkshire, is a Cavalry Audio production. Produced by Brandon Morgan and Zach McNeese. Zach also edited and mixed all episodes. Music by Soundstripe and Blue Dot Sessions. Our executive producers are Dana Brunetti and Keegan Rosenberger. I'm Brandon Morgan, your writer and narrator. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.